Welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we interview the incredible South Asian Australian author, Shankari Chandran. Shankari is a renowned writer who preserves our culture and history through her work and uses her books as a platform to share the stories which often go untold but need to be heard. This conversation with Shankari was so insightful and it was a true honour to have her on. Make sure to buy her latest book, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens at all good bookstores. Now on to the episode. Shankari, we are so excited to finally sit down with you. Um, this episode has been a long time coming. It has and I'm so excited and happy to be here with you too. I wanted to start by showing a little bit about our relationship. So before we started the podcast, I had always struggle to channel my creative energy and in the 2020 lockdown I had this idea of writing about my Amama story and when I was talking to my parents about it they said you know you have to read this book called Song of the Sun God by Shankri Chandran and they've been raving about this for years but for whatever reason I hadn't picked it up so I finally read it and I fell in love with you and I fell in love with your writing and um, very quickly it became obvious that this is definitely uh, you know something that's not in my wheelhouse to be doing <laughs> um, and funnily enough it was the day after that where Romy and I had the conversation that sparked the idea for the podcast mm. so indirectly you've inspired us in this way yeah and then fast forwarding a few months um, you and I had the opportunity to meet and it was at a point where we had just started the podcast and we were still finding our feed. And I mean, I think even now we, we often suffer from imposter syndrome, um, but it was quite big back then. And mm. you pulled me aside and said, saying then, you know, this is something you need to be doing. Um, you know, you're going to figure it out. Just take your time. It's going to take you on this incredible journey. Just don't ever give up. And I feel like since then you've been a creative actor for me. And I know 2021 was a crazy year for you with the book and your daughter doing the HSC, but you still put in the effort to message us words of encouragement and, yeah. you know, give us some feedback. So thank you for all of that. And I'm so stoked that we finally get to record with you and have this conversation. Oh, thank you guys. None of that is necessary. Thank you is never necessary between family. Um, and I think you guys are incredible storytellers and the way that you capture people's experiences and give it a platform for others to listen to and learn from is tremendous. And so I love having you in my kitchen on a regular basis <laughs> um, and thank you for the work that you do. No, and since then, Sandin has not stopped talking about you as well. So I'm very honoured to be finally meeting you. And also we wanted to thank you and your publishers for sending us a copy of your latest advanced book. Copy. Advanced copy, I was about to say. So it wasn't even the published copy. So we felt very special and it was great summertime reading as well. Well, my PR person said to me, who are the cultural curators and the social influencers that you know? So you guys are on the top of my list. Oh, stop it. Oh, oh my gosh. We made it. <laughs> um what is interesting about your career, Akka, is that you started off as a full-time lawyer and then pivoted to also becoming an author. And I remember listening to an interview that you had done previously about how your father is a doctor. And so given your law background and then your family's background, how did writing come to you? 
So I've always been interested in reading, in listening to the stories of other people and always been interested in telling stories from a young age. And I don't see myself as having necessarily pivoted away from anything, but rather just building on the work that I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. And so my work as a lawyer was entirely about exploring issues of justice and injustice, looking at the dispossession of people exploring the ways in which rights are trampled upon and then transformed and working with marginalised communities. And for me, my writing, my creative writing, really builds on those same themes. And in some ways, I think my writing and fiction picks up from where I feel that my legal life has reached its own limit. And so Mm. the law can't always protect, it can't always fix or adjudicate. There are certain injustices for which there will actually be no justice. But through fiction, I find myself able to then explore and interrogate that more fully Mm. in a way that I couldn't do um, and still can't do through the law. In terms of my parents' own careers, it's fascinating to me just how community-minded and how socially-minded they have always been and continue to be. And I think that we were very fortunate, my brother and I were very fortunate, to grow up with parents like that who really role-modelled a sense of duty and a sense of community. Um, And for both of us, I hope that my brother and I both try to live those values through our professional careers and through our storytelling. Yeah, so it's like the the same passions that live within you have taken or manifested different forms. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. We want to go back to a few of the things that you just touched on in a bit. But something I found really interesting when we met probably about this time last year is that uh, we were talking about your creative process. And my Amma asked you, uh, you know, as someone who's brought up in London and brought up in Canberra, you haven't physically been to many of the places that you paint such beautiful and detailed pictures of in your writing. And obviously you haven't lived many of the experiences or in the times that you write so intimately about you know, how were you able to do that? And you said, you know, obviously there's a lot of time and effort that goes into your research, but you also have this really unique experience with these stories coming to you throughout your writing process. Yeah, I I think the sort of the research-based side is perhaps the most obvious, right? Because I am a lawyer, we're trained to do research and we're trained to interrogate and be robust about the information that we put forward. And certainly in writing Song of the Sun God, it was very important to me to be as historically accurate as I possibly could because I didn't want anyone to look at one aspect of it and say, this is not true therefore undermined the veracity of everything else that I had written. Um, And that book for me, Song of the Sun God, was very much an adjudication of a history from independence to the end of the war. And what I believe was an honest exploration of it, and I didn't want it undermined by my own having failed to be 100% accurate to the best of my own ability. Mm. It is, however, also a, a novel that is very much based on the memories and the stories of other people. And I think since I was a child, I think that that people, for whatever reason, and and often complete strangers, will feel very comfortable to come and tell me their stories. And that has been very much a feature of my life from childhood. And now as an adult, I actually just treat it as a privilege. And if people stop me and they want to tell me who they are and what they feel, what they've experienced, I allow them to do that. And I, I treat it as a gift from them and I think that all of that really infuses my my creative fiction. And I would never use information that people give me without their permission. Yeah. Equally, you're surrounded by the stories of people. And when I travelled, 
I went, you know, from one auntie's house to another around the world, as you do when you're backpacking and your mother gives you a long list and then and your grandmother gives you an even longer list of um, fourth cousins that you have to visit yeah. in Toronto. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and as I was going around the world meeting these aunties and uncles, they were sharing their stories with me. Right. And I don't have a very good um, capacity, for example, to navigate or to reverse parallel park, but I am excellent <laughs> at remembering the stories of other people. Right. And so all of that is woven into the book and it's the story of people from across generations, which is why I hope that the novel itself traverses those generations mm. and those decades in Sri Lanka and in Jaffna accurately and evocatively. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And something else that I found super fascinating that you mentioned that night, if um, you're comfortable to speak to, yes, was that sometimes you have this kind of spiritual connection to these stories where you hear voices in your head telling you stories or, you know, you can hear books talking to you. Wow. I do. I mean, I think it sounds crazy and I, you know, now we're going to out myself on radio because it does sound a little crazy, but I have often felt that I'm surrounded by the stories and the energy of people and I couldn't tell you who those people are and I couldn't tell you if they were alive or dead, but I can hear it. It is entirely around me as though I am constantly followed by a community of people who are trying to speak to me. Mm. And it actually makes for very troubled sleeping, for example, mm. and it makes for distraction in that I will be, you know, I remember as a child sitting in school assemblies, but not really being there. And that suggests that I'm a chronic daydreamer, but really what's happening is I'm talking to or hearing the stories of other people. And at a certain age, I did actually just accept that these stories want to be told and that I am at times an open doorway for them to be told. And the most important thing that I can do and have to do is simply to write down what I'm hearing. Mm. So it is that creative process where you're not making something up, you're simply writing it down mm. and you're being open to the story and you have to be as faithful to what you're hearing and what you're seeing as you possibly mm-hmm. can. Right. So I think that um, I just feel very fortunate now that stories talk to me and that throughout my life, because I've read a lot and I practice hard, I work hard at things, I'm grateful that I have some ability with language, right? So I think of words as my friends and I think of books as my friends. And so when I walk into my living room, which is surrounded you know, floor to ceiling with books, I often find myself just going, hello, friends. It's almost like an instinctive because these are the stories and they're living to me. Mm. Um, And I think of words as my friends. If someone gives me a task to do that involves writing, I'm not particularly terrified of it because I know that I'm going to sit with my friends and we're going to construct something beautiful together. Mm. And so there is a responsibility around this and a, a duty and a burden, but also an immense privilege and really all I do is try to honour the story and get it right for the people that are telling me their stories. Mm. Yeah. That experience that you have is not necessarily just when you're sitting down about to write. It is through different circumstances. Yes, it's frequent. Yeah. <laughs> it's frequent. Would you then, once you realise you had that gift, would you then be carrying around like a, a pen and paper to always. make sure that you were documenting that just in case yes. you so always, get that feeling? I always have like a pad in my handbag and a pad in the car and a pad by the side of my bed. Yeah. But I don't think of it as a gift. Like I, I, I genuinely just think that it's it's a privilege and it isn't a gift. Like, you know, if you want to read gifted literature, I'll give you a reading list this is just a, a privilege and um, a fortuitous sort of convergence of my own personality type, I think, that's largely unthreatening to people mm. and would hope that is a respectful and safe space for others to tell me their stories. 
and a certain dexterity with language, with words. Yeah. Yeah, that's not rocket science, right? My dad saves lives for a living. Let's not overstate what I do here. <laughs> but you preserve lives and stories for a living. Thank you. Um, I, I, I preserve stories. I preserve stories, and these are the stories of people's lives. And I consider myself to be one of a community and ecosystem of writers and storytellers that try very hard to do that in lots of different ways. And that's also what you do, right? That's what you do. And that's what my 11-year-old does when he sits down with his grandmother and says, Apama, did you have a nice day today? Mm. And then he coaxes it out of her because he is very patient and gentle and she has beautiful stories to tell. So we all do that. We do all do it. I just do it with the written word. Mm. So when you are deep into that writing process, it must be so difficult to pull out of that, right? Like even if I watch or read something that's heavy, I'm thinking about it constantly. Like I can't get it out of my mind and I have difficulty falling asleep sometimes because of it. But I could imagine that when you're writing those types of stories that are quite heavy, it must be even more difficult to pull out of that, right? Yeah, it's incredibly absorbing. And with Song of the Sun God, because it was my first novel and I was you know, very much a novice as a writer, I had to be incredibly disciplined because I wasn't very good at pulling myself out of the story. Yeah. And, you know, you're writing about these incredibly traumatic things. And then at 2.50, I've got to walk the dog to go pick up four beautiful children from school and switch into a frame of mind that is optimistic and hopeful yeah. and, and energised and, yeah. you know, ready to make snacks and support homework <laughs> and supervise music. Yeah. It's very difficult to make the flip. And, and at the moment, I'm just toying with a new structure of writing where I'm trying to get up in the morning, write for 20 minutes on my new novel and then begin my working day. And it's taking me a little bit of time still to, to flip my head, but I can see that I am getting better at it. And so again, like anything, it, it's really just about practice and discipline. Yep. It just requires a kind of emotional discipline to extract yourself from these often very traumatic, very difficult, painful stories of others, mm. and then to reemerge into you know the present day in Australia, in leafy Linfield, um, and then to carry on business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit before about preserving stories and that's what you do with your privilege about you know people sharing stories with you. Um, and that's obviously something that Sandin and I picked up upon reading your books and the conversations Sandin's had with you as well, especially preserving ancestral stories. And like me personally, it's not something that I have given a lot of thought to because you tend to take people around you for granted and you don't realise that you didn't know about them or that you didn't ask about their background or their upbringing until it's too late. Um, your first book, Song of the Sun God, it's really heavily inspired from your own experiences and your family's experiences, I should say. Uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, they definitely should because it's a beautiful book. But could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So Song of the Sun God is about three generations of Australian Tamil women and the choices that they make to survive Sri Lanka's war. It traverses three continents, um, the three generations, and it explores themes of duty, family love, regret, and the secrets we tell to protect the people we love. Mm. You know, it's, it's a funny old story to me, in a way, in that the first draft of it was very much inspired by my, my family's own yeah. story and their migration and their experiences in Sri Lanka, their experiences in the UK and Australia. I got to the end of writing that novel, right? Novel in inverted commas, the manuscript. And I was so proud of it because I thought, right, this is amazing. 
and sent it to an agent and she said, look, you write beautifully, but actually it doesn't have a narrative dramatic arc. And of course it doesn't because our family has had an incredibly privileged and safe life. We've been so fortunate that the choices that my grandparents and my parents made very early on and through their hard work and just good fortune, just good luck, ended up in countries that were safe and were able to build lives that have been secure and have given us enormous educational and financial privilege to go on and live our happy, safe lives. I mean, what an extraordinary life we've been given. And therefore, it doesn't, and thank God, doesn't have the tragedy that Song of the Sun God has. And so when I went back to then revisit that novel, narratively, like really challenging myself and learning to be not just someone that listens to stories and tells stories, but then crafts stories into a novel. And the novel form is very different from other forms. And you have to learn how to do it. So I then made myself go back to first principles and learn the actual craft of constructing story. Right. And then in order to do that, I did turn to the classics. You know, I reread the Mahabharata because mm. you can never reread it too many times. And I've always been obsessed with Karna and his story became Dara's story or yeah. her story became his story. And I just effectively rewrote the novel and Dara emerged from that as the, as the story engine. Mm. So she drives the novel in the end, even though you initially think that it's Nala and Rajan's mm. story. And that's where the, the tragedy and the pathos and the power of Song of the Sun God comes from. And so whilst I wrote it, it isn't our family history anymore and it doesn't come from us collectively as the Rasnayagams or the Chandrans and the Sivagurus and the Kadiravalpalais, it is drawn very heavily from those experiences. But mm. the power of the narrative arc is fiction that comes from Dara, that was inspired by the Mahabharata, but comes from the lived experience of tens of thousands, yeah. if not hundreds yeah. of thousands, of Sri Lankan Tamil people. Yeah. I mean, that's also why the book is called Song of the Sun God, right? Because Correct. in the Mahabharata, who's the son of the sun god? Yes. I think um, another really powerful thing about Song of the Sun God is how, in many ways, it's so universal to the immigrant story, right? And mm -hmm. like the interchangeability of the character names. Yeah. Like I can replace the names of Nala and Rajan with my grandparents' names. And now it becomes my family story. Mm. And I've got this window into many of our grandparents' experiences, having to watch their homeland be torn apart and what many of our parents would have been feeling and contemplating when deciding to migrate to the West. Yeah. Um, what was that process like for you to reflect on your family's journey when writing the book? And um, what did that involve and what did you learn about your ancestral history? I think that process for me has been lifelong, right? It, it perhaps intensified over the writing of this novel from 2012 to 2014. But I think my brother and I have gone through a lifelong process of observing our own parents and our grandparents and our uncles and aunties. We're incredibly fortunate, not just within our own bloodline, you know, our own actual biological family as it were, but one of the many beautiful things about being Tamil is that your family is not just your biological family, but it's your entire community. It's the yeah. entire community of aunties and uncles who play a part in raising you and who are always looking out for you and who are always telling you what to do and what to think and how to be. But in the meantime, we're also always telling you their family history. Mm. And so I think we've all gone through a process if you, know, if you listen with curiosity and with humility you will hear those stories and um, if you've got a reasonable memory, you'll remember them. And then if you like words, you can put them down on paper 
And if you don't know how to stop, then you keep going and get to 144,000 words and go, oh, that looks like a novel. <laughs> um, and so for me, the process was incredibly rewarding and incredibly humbling to to listen and remember their stories of adversity and resilience and courage and compassion and how all of that translates into into lives lived really well. You know, they live great lives of contribution and community. And so I feel really constantly humbled by it and constantly empowered and pushed and supported and encouraged to do better and to be better. Yeah. Yeah. I think having spoken to you about this before as well, you're obviously doing a lot in terms of archiving so many people's lived experiences in this way. But there's also this sense of responsibility to give voice to stories that um, because of, you know, media control or censorship Mm. or government intervention and what's covered in the mainstream often gets oppressed. And, you know, that's unfortunately something that happens in all corners of the world, not just in Sri Lanka. Um, But that responsibility of making sure that these stories aren't forgotten and that there is accountability and we don't just take the narrative that's pushed to us. Um, Can you share a little bit about where that kind of stemmed from? So Sri Lanka is a terrible example, uh, although in a sense a perfect example of a place where the truth simply isn't told. There isn't space for the truth and there isn't safety for the truth. And that is a reason why I think fiction, for example, particularly fiction that's driven by people who have the privilege of being outside the country and therefore safe, have the capacity to research, explore and tell the truth. Um, I remember talking to a, a Tamil doctor who had stayed with the refugees during the final months of the conflict. He had sent his wife and children away to safety and he had stayed with the refugees as they moved from one side of the island across the north to the other. And he literally had been tearing strips of saris to use it as bandages. He had been amputating limbs without anaesthetic. He had been giving Panadol and then running out of Panadol when what they really needed was IVs and antibiotics and and blood transfusions. He'd been shielding children, you know, as mortar bombs are dropping from the sky. He's stepping over the dead to reach the living. He had the most extraordinary experience and extraordinary duty and contribution. Yeah, I said to him, I'm interviewing you and you are wonderfully and generously sharing your stories and your trauma with me, with your permission, and if you wish, your stories will form part of this novel. And he said to me that in Sri Lanka, there is no space for the truth. And without truth, there can be no healing. And without truth, there can be no reconciliation. And fiction is an important way of telling the truth. And with that, he then told me his story. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us that, that live outside, that live with privilege and with safety, to, to do that, to, to listen, and then to write those stories down, to tell those stories, and to ensure that the truth isn't forgotten. Mm. And I think we're also always so enamoured in the search for truth, right? And we always think that there's one truth and there's one way that one event happened in life. But there's fact, which is, you know, on this date, X amount of people were affected by this event. But then there's also truth and there can be multiple truths as well. So I think that's also the value of writing like what you do because you're not just sharing one side of the story, you're also sharing how that one event has affected different lives and their own individual truths as well, which is also so important because it shares perspective and it allows people to open their minds yeah i feel like we're always so 
I don't know, in search for one one way, like one truth, which is not the case at yeah. all. And, you know, in your um, podcast with Devdath Patnaik, he yeah, talks about yeah. the multiplicities and the diversities yeah. that actually South Asian cultures are very comfortable with. And, you know, it, it's something that I think people should re-listen to that podcast because it really enables us to centre the wealth of our own wisdom. Um, and when you think about truth and evidence and fact and history – Traditional truth and reconciliation models and transitional justice programs, and Sri Lanka is supposed to be pursuing a transitional justice program, they allow for and acknowledge the multiplicities of truths, that one person's lived experience is different from another's. And what we take away from what happened and who did it to us and why it was done to us and what the impact of that is, um, the transitional justice model actually acknowledges that those truths, as it were, can coexist simultaneously. Yeah. And it's only if we are willing to listen mm. to those truths that we take a step forward on that path towards reconciliation. Mm. And the problem in Sri Lanka and in many countries is that they are not willing to acknowledge and listen. They, they won't take that even that first step mm. towards genuine and meaningful reconciliation mm. and post-conflict reconstruction. Yeah. I mean, even if you think about Australia's history, right, like the truth is that, you know, Captain Cook and the rest of them arrived, which also happened, but at the same time it affected our First Nations people. So there are two truths that happened in that scenario and it's taken even our country here in Australia so long to reconcile with that. And it's still an ongoing process, right? Like there are still people who celebrate Australia Day on Invasion Day and so on and so forth. So yeah. I think it's definitely a universal feeling. I yes. feel like every country almost has its own Absolutely. And, yeah. and the question from a reconciliation or a perspective, whether it be for Australia or Sri Lanka or anywhere in the world, is how do we acknowledge and respect and allow for the coexistence of those different truths? So it is not for me to shame and blame someone who wishes to call the 26th of January Australia Day. That is their reality, right? That is their truth. And what we need to do is actually have a respectful conversation about the facts that took place and the consequences of what happened as a result of those facts mm. and the way we absorb that narrative as our own and what kind of narrative do we then shape for the future of the country together. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think... That's why works like yours are so important, right? Because you do explore these experiences which are often suppressed or misrepresented um, and not just from the Tamil perspective, right? You look at it from all sides. Yeah. I, with Song of the Sun God, I tried very hard to construct what could be considered a more balanced narrative in that I was really willing to interrogate the behaviour of the Tigers as well as the behaviour of the Sri Lankan government and all of the sort of actors in the theatre of war, right? right. In Chai Time at Simon Gardens, it had gone for a pre-read to an editor and the editor had come back and said, you know, the book is about the importance of storytelling but she hasn't included any stories from the, the Sri Lankan government or the Sinhalese perspective and, you know, do we need to redress that balance? And by this time in my evolution as an author and as an artist – I was at the stage where I actually said, no, I don't think I need to present those stories. Those stories exist in the mainstream. They exist in the news. They exist in Sri Lanka and they exist outside Sri Lanka. It is not my job or my duty to tell those stories. I will tell our stories as best that I can, recognising that I'm only one of many Tamil authors, writers, creative and people. So my story is not the only story and it's certainly not the best told story. It is just my story the way I told it. 
and that is my responsibility, that is my duty. Mm-hmm. It was a really interesting sort of transition for me as an author in where I saw my own responsibilities sitting. Mm. But it, So, yes, as you say, it's, you know, literature and fiction and books and novels are a way of creating a platform for stories and a way of preserving those stories. And those stories have immense power in reframing past narratives Mm. and in framing future narratives. And so in the author's note, I talk about the fact that we as Tamil children were told a certain history of Sri Lanka and that Sinhalese children are no doubt told a, a history of Sri Lanka. And I don't, as an author or a citizen or a human, propose to debate and dispute which history is right. I present this novel as my understanding of the history we were told, but also as an exploration of the way in which historical narratives create legitimacy over a people's right to be there. Mm. So when you claim and possess and control history, you have the capacity to then define who has the right to be there and who does not have the mm. right to be there. And that is a very important phenomenon that happened in Sri Lanka, it happens in Australia, and it happens around the world. Yeah. yeah, and even if you think of the definition of history, right, it's often from the point of view of whoever is seen as the more powerful the person, yeah, or the victors of that particular nation or you know, whatever context you're talking about. But if you look at the word prehistoric, it's the things that happened before recorded history, but there's so much richness and relevance in that, which is passed on, you know, through oral, through music, through dance, like much like our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, but it's gotten lost over time because it's taken over by this notion of history, which is the recorded history that comes afterwards as well, which is, again, such a big value of preserving and passing stories in a way and and digging into your ancestral stories because there could be so much that's gone unrecorded that you have no idea about because of who's actually written history and at what point of a a nation or a family or whatever, like what year does that history start from? You know, it's like everything before that's often disregarded. Yeah, like what is prehistoric? And, and how do we choose to, to archive it or, or to record it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think even the concept of written history is potentially a very westernised construct. Yeah. It's, you know, South Asian cultures are, are very, have very strong oral traditions yeah. and they have lots of other ways of preserving that history. Temple walls, for mm-hmm. example, tapestries and woven um, artwork, for example. And Aboriginal history, as you mentioned, is, is very much an oral tradition and it's this idea that, you know, we must record history in a particular way. My preferred art form is obviously the written word, but it is not the only art form and it is not the only form of recording history. And so I do struggle with the fact that we are forced into particular constructs and I would do wonder if those constructs have come from whoever it is is, is the sort of pervading superpower of the time mm. and in our lives and lifetime it has been very much about western civilization yeah yeah and i think the other thing about being able to share those multiple truths and those different stories that we were talking about previously is because it shows the universality of human experiences right like we're all going through similar emotions as humans but in different contexts And I think when you do hear other sides of the story brings hopefully a little more empathy to humans as well, because they do 
when they read your books, for example, you're sharing very intimate and, and serious experiences that other people have gone through that hopefully a reader can take away and kind of relate to in, in some small way, which I think is another benefit of sharing those multiple stories and multiple truths. Yeah. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of preserving stories, um, we would love if you can please read an excerpt of your latest book, Char Time at Cinnamon Gardens. Um, Sandin and I were scribbling and doing like little post-it notes when we were reading your book. Yeah, underlining, highlighting. um, And we realised we were like highlighting the entire book itself. So it's very hard to choose one excerpt, but I think this particular one very much talks to everything that we've just spoken about. Human beings are storytellers. From the beginning of our existence, we have told stories. We have carved, painted and drawn them onto stone and paper. We seek to explain our creation and existence, our death and destruction through stories. We define ourselves as individuals, communities and as nations through the stories we tell each other. History is the most powerful of all these stories. Ownership of culture, language, and land depends on ownership of history. I love that so much. Absolutely beautiful. And we honestly did really struggle to pick just one quote for you to read because (laughs) there's so many beautiful passages in your book and your writing. Um, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit and ask you, Romy, what responsibility do you feel individually to preserve your family's stories? So I said this before as well. I've never given a lot of thought to this before I actually read Song of the Sun God. I feel like that's what really made me think about my family and potentially how I would want to preserve or share those stories because I never knew my grandparents. Both my grandfathers passed away well before I was born. My amama passed away when I was like four. My upper mom, my dad's mom, passed away maybe about five or six years ago. But I never grew up around them. I never grew up around extended family. Um, So I never really thought about to to dig into my ancestor stories. And my parents don't even know a lot about it as well. And so for me, like I've always sat down with my parents and had like fun conversations about their childhood and what it was like. But I never really thought about really documenting it. Because for me, I can't go back a generation above my parents because a lot of them aren't alive. So what, what I can do is talk to my own parents about their childhood and their history because one day they will be grandparents. Um, and so I would want something to pass on to them and generations beyond that. So I think for me personally, that's where I would start, just like I, I digging in a little bit more. You could also to talk to your parents, parents about their parents' experience, your grandparents' experience. Yeah, you learn yeah, about that through them, I can. Right? I, I've tried to before, but they themselves... They've, they've told me, like, my grandpa, my mum's dad had done a lot of humanitarian work in Sri Lanka and he lived in England for a bit and he was, like, a very progressive man for that time. Like, he would bring my grandma back, like, skirts and, like, sleeveless tops and she's like, bro, I can't wear this. We <laughs> live in Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I know about that, but I think, you know, if I had direct access to them, you know, obviously I could have dug in a little bit more, but, you know, obviously the best I can do right now is ask my parents and my aunties and uncles about what their parents were like. Mm. But I think I can't also discount my own parents' stories as well. Of course. Because you think that, oh, like they're still relatively young, like, you know, it's fine, but I don't want to leave it to my children to uncover their grandparents' stories. Like I think I still want to be asking them because they've had some really incredible experiences themselves. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit different in that 
I've always been curious about my family's history. And mm. I think living with my Amama has really helped with that. Yeah. Um, I've been telling my Amama for years to write her story while she can because, you know, there's so much for us to cherish and learn mm. from. But she'd always make excuses uh, not to. So what I did in the 2020 lockdown is I'd go and sit with her with uh, my voice recorder on my phone recording, but not tell her that it was recording yeah. and just ask her about these things. So, yeah, I think it's something that I do, but I definitely need to do more of. Mm. Um, even like with my parents, right? Like sometimes what they would consider as insignificant moments are so interesting and have so much depth that I want to yeah. dig into on earth. And uh, yeah, I think that's the other thing is like, I know what happened, but I don't know how it made them feel. Mm. So I think that's something else I need to kind of dig more into as well. So yeah, I guess it's about like, you know, how do we pull these stories from people who might not feel the significance of sharing them? And then how do we preserve it in a way that can be passed on? Mm. Uh, I think those are the two things that Song of the Sun God and Chai Time really reminded me of. Yeah. yeah. I once had this idea, um, well, it wasn't my idea. I'm sure plenty of people have had this idea, that I would create an oral history platform, a bit like Brahmi Juggins sort of survival stories, yeah. right? But it would be more of an oral history project in the nursing home. And I had sort of known that I'd wanted to set a novel there as well. And in addition to that, I thought, wouldn't it be incredible to create this bank of oral history stories? And of course, didn't have the time or the ability to do it. And then instead wrote the novel. It's really interesting because a lot of the things you speak about uh, wanting to do or that's working in your mind, you also see come out in the characters that you're writing. Because yeah. there's something that Maya did yeah, yeah. in uh, Chai in Time, Chai right? Time. And I think it's probably a good segue to chat about your latest book, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. Um, in Year 12 English for HSC, we did a module called History versus Memory. And it was all about how what history remembers and what we're taught in the textbook is often a different narrative to the memories and lived experiences of those who who lived through that history, right? And reading Chai Time, um, that's what I was really reminded of as it looks not only to the history of our homeland, but also to that of Australia. Mm. Um, so you were able to address these really big themes in your book, but also explore really intimate and personal emotions like love and grief and ego, um, all through the context of a nursing home. Uh, could you share a little bit about why you felt that this was an important story to tell and why you chose a nursing home out of all places to unpack these themes through? So many questions in one question, Zenon. Um, you should know me better by now. Yes. So I, I wrote Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens because I wanted to interrogate what it means to be Australian and who gets to decide that. That is something that I have been thinking about my entire life. And certainly when we moved back from London to Australia in 2010 – it was really brought home to me that the concept of being an Australian and who this country was for was very powerfully shaped and driven by a particular part of Australian society in a vocal and sometimes vicious manner. And so, you know, I'm Australian and this particular story explores the, the lives and the voices of people on the margins of that definition of what it means to be Australian. Whereas actually I think Australian stories are stories that are written by Australians and if I'm Australian, then this is an Australian yeah. story, yeah. right? So for me, it allowed me to really interrogate um, the creation of that identity and the way that it includes some and excludes others. 
and the notion of what it means to be Australian and un-Australian, which is a very powerful part of the public narrative driven by, as I said, certain parts of Australian society. Um, And I found it a, a difficult novel to write and a frightening novel at times to write because I was having to force myself to step away from what I've been indoctrinated and trained to be, which is to be a very grateful migrant, you know, to to hold firm with that narrative that this country has given us refuge, which it has, that it has allowed us to create a tremendous life of safety and privilege for ourselves and our children, which it has, and that I must therefore be quiet and complicit in everything else that everybody else says about them and us. In fact, indeed, the creation of them and us. And... It had been a slow burn. I've been thinking about this since I was a child. And and over the course of my life, with increasing degrees of um, frustration and confusion and grief. And so in this novel, I had to allow myself to step away from being a grateful migrant and to really say, well, actually, everybody who came after First Nations people are indeed migrants. all migrants. And that we all are here on stolen and somebody else's land. And that therefore, we should all be working this out together. Mm. Um, And it was frightening for me because it actually takes you into territory where you're effectively calling out racism in a country that is very firmly committed to this idea that we give everyone a fair go and we we are not a racist country. And so, you know, I was almost writing fearfully. And then, of course, in early 2020, um, George Floyd was murdered, the pandemic had picked up, its pace. There was a lot of Asian hate around the world. And I'd been working closely with First Nations communities and the Black Lives Matter in Australia had also really grabbed that spotlight. And so I was really able to liberate myself from that fear. Um, I also imagined that this would be the last novel I'd ever write. Um, So I wrote with complete freedom and complete honesty, therefore, and what emerged was Chaitamitsen Gardens. Right. I wrote it in a nursing home because my grandmother lives in a nursing home that my uncle and family have set up in Homebush. And it's a really beautiful place. And when we would go to visit and we would take our four children, you know, Amama would tell us the stories of her life and then we would take her for a walk down the corridor and she would tell us the stories and the secrets and the scandals of everybody in the nursing home. And these stories and secrets and scandals would often be grounded in 1952. You know, mm. when my grandmother tells you a story about what's happened today, she does actually begin that story three to five decades ago. <laughs> and so, and a five minute story, as you can see with me, a five minute story can then take 35 <laughs> minutes. And so, as she's telling us these stories and we're learning and, you know, you go to anybody's room in that nursing home and you'll see four generations of a family and they're laughing and they're learning and they're fighting and they're telling stories and listening to stories. And I thought, God, what a beautiful place of storytelling and what a beautiful place of community creation and what an exceptional place in which to set a novel. Because mm. mm. often we don't think too deeply about what's behind the walls of a nursing yeah. home, right? It's It kind of blends into the background and we don't always yeah. appreciate you, what's behind Yeah, it. you forget there are real people who've lived so many decades worth of experiences that you can get so much knowledge out of, which is, yeah, a big takeaway that Seven and I had around this particular story as well, given that it was set in a nursing home. Um, so you were mentioning before when you were writing Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens that you wrote fairly freely and you didn't pull back because you felt like it may have been your last novel. Had that not been the case, what would you have done differently? I might have written a politer novel. 
uh, I, I probably would have excluded a lot of the trauma. Um, you know, it's interesting. Somebody asked me recently about my new project. A, a beautiful man, a good friend of ours, and a white Australian. And he asked, he said, "What are you working on? And are you going to write about Sri Lanka again?" And he didn't say Sri Lanka again, but he said, "Are you going to write about Sri Lanka again? You know, or are you going to write about other things?" And it's a really interesting question because I, you know, I I sort of mocked him, and I don't think he picked it up. But I said, I don't think Richard Flanagan ever gets asked if he's going to write about white people again. Mm. Um, and I'm certainly not comparing myself to the great Richard Flanagan, but I am suggesting that what we write about is considered ethnic fiction yeah. of a kind and that um, there's almost a sort of eye-rolling of, mm. oh, this again. Yeah, there's like um, a cap or a number of yeah. times you can write about it and that is it. We've had enough. <laughs> yes, yeah. and, and yet Leanne Moriarty, whilst the, yeah. her novels are you know incredibly yeah. commercially successful and don't we all want to be that commercially successful, continues to write about white people mm. of a certain social milieu yeah. in a certain postcode. Yeah. And we, we never check that. And so I think if we were all to just accept that we were all our own universal norm and that every story was as valid as the next one, um, then I'd probably never get that question. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wrote this novel with that in mind. I wrote Chai Time at Simon Gardens, centering the value and the importance and the universality of the Tamil story. Mm. And if anything, I only looked to seek to find its resonances in the stories of other people of colour. And I sought to challenge the white-centric, Eurocentric notion of what it means to be Australian and to pull it apart and to force it wide open and to stake my own claim in what it means to be Australian and what it means for my children to be Australian. Yeah, like just because it's a story about brown people doesn't mean that it's a story that non-brown people can't connect with or learn from. Yeah, correct. And um, just because it's about brown people, it doesn't mean it's an un-Australian story. Exactly. It's about Australian yeah. brown people. And that a white yeah. person can't walk into a bookstore, pick it up and find it fascinating. Mm. Yeah. And I know you mentioned on another podcast you were on that you got some feedback from white people who said that they could connect with the story because they had, you know, Russian or Italian grandparents who migrated mm. and had similar experiences. I mean, not obviously not entirely similar, mm. but... There are parallels yeah. and things that people can connect to. Yeah, again, that universality of it, right? Because you're all, like we were saying before, all humans have faced similar emotions just in different contexts. And that's where these things are mm-hmm. relatable to, to almost everyone if everyone was open-minded enough yeah. to actually pick up and, and read these types of yeah. books. Just to that point on the, I guess, passive or casual racism that you felt, there's a character in your book called Zakir Ali. And if I'm not wrong... In your second book, The Barrier, which is like a sci-fi sort of thriller, you originally wanted to name the protagonist Zakir Ali, mm. but you were told by your publisher that it needed to be a more westernised name. Is that right? The way it happened was that I'd written and, and was sort of completing The Barrier, which was in a, you know, set in 2040. It's a post-apocalyptic world that's been destroyed by an Ebola pandemic and global religious wars that have converged. 
and the religions of Western civilization asserts itself over the East and destroys the religions of the East through a global vaccination program. And it was a lot of fun to write because, well, it was pre-pandemic for starters, and so it seemed like fiction. And <laughs> it was written after I wrote Song of the Sun God, which had been quite a traumatizing experience to immerse myself in, in the pain of other people. That said, it is simply the pain of other people, and other people have experienced it and have to live with it. Um, and so I thought, well, let me just write a comedy about a post-apocalyptic world. That'll be fun. And at the same time, I was putting Song of the Sun God out to get it published. And the feedback that I was getting back was that it's beautifully written. It's a fascinating story. However, we will not be able to sell it in Australia. It is not Australian enough. There isn't a readership for it here. There isn't a market for it here. And I was thinking, well, it's a story about colonization, dispossession, forced migration and the creation of home. What could be more Australian mm. than that? And in the course of having that experience and feedback back from publishers, I was devastated and angered, but also wanting to create a, a career for myself as a writer and therefore thought, look, the barrier is not going to get published in this country with a protagonist called Zakir Ali. I could probably make that work in the British publishing market where we're much more comfortable with South Asian culture um, and with Britain's role in colonisation as the coloniser. Um, however, in Australia, that's not going to work. And so I basically did find all, replace all, and changed his name from Zakir Ali to Noah Williams. Mm. And Zakir, you know, wonderfully has come back in Chaitanya yeah. Simon Gardens as one of my favourite characters. Yeah. That's, again, it's so fascinating hearing your experiences and all the things that either you've got of going on or what what you want to do or what you're thinking about because you see all of that manifest in your characters mm. as well right because again this is something that Maya also navigates within your book as well yeah yes well all fiction is a little bit of or a lot of memoir right yeah, yeah. And plus wish fulfillment I mean I think Maya goes on to become a very successful writer of yeah. contemporary romance and wouldn't we all want to be very successful writers of contemporary something <laughs> yeah you know even thinking about characters like Ruben for example right um, for those who don't interact a lot with refugees or only know them as statistics mm. the the trauma of what they've been through or the pain of what they've left behind um we can start to see that and feel that through your characters which is yeah absolutely amazing yeah thank you that's thank you i hope that i have honored and respected that and you know i i know that i talk a lot about privilege but the reason that i talk about privilege is because we have very privileged existences and i think the the tamil experience of coming to this country post-83 is very different from the Tamil experience of coming to this country in the late 70s, as we were fortunate enough to do. Yeah. And again, the further into or deeper into the conflict that, that waves of migration have come, the more destabilised their lives were by it, the more traumatised they were by it, the more loved ones they lost because of it. And therefore, their entire future is very different from the future we were able to carve for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've spoken a little bit about your novels that you've written so far, but what's on the cards next? I have a fun story for you. So because I changed the barrier to a white protagonist, it then got published quickly, but it also got optioned for television quickly. And the television option lapsed eventually because we were then in the throes of a pandemic and it was much harder, oddly enough, to make television shows about a pandemic. Um, and so I like to give myself fun projects to do and my latest project is that I'm going to find Hugh Jackman who is a practicing Hindu he's a practicing exponent of Vedanta right now if you know Vedanta or even Saiva Siddhanta even better um, 
if if you've read it or if you've been fortunate enough to have a father that won't stop talking about it, then you'll see that philosophy throughout the barrier. And so my fun project for 2022 is um, to eat less sugar and to, <laughs> and to, find, to break my dependency on sugar and to find Hugh Jackman. Oh, my gosh. And if to you pitch find him, him, please tell me. You are right there with can me, I, Can I join you on this hunt? 100%. I'm going to find Hugh Jackman. I'm going to give him a copy of The Barrier and I'm going to say you are Noah Williams because you <laughs> understand the philosophy and you believe in the things that it talks about, including the injustice of Western imperialism um, and the importance of Eastern religions and the fact that Eastern philosophy is a wonderfully embracing philosophy that allows for all spiritual journeys to coexist, mm. one being no more important than the other, towards an ultimate reality and an ultimate spiritual truth. You believe that and you're on board with that and you would look excellent in a super spy outfit <laughs> running through the ancient ruins of Sri Lanka probably set in another nation where it's safer to film. Um, and so let's talk movie deal. That's, That's incredible. Just Don't for worry, fun. Let me, let me, um, if you're listening. <laughs> let me just shoot him a text. I'll, I'll connect you, you guys. You could do that. Yeah, Thank you, no Sam. Yeah. That would be yeah. excellent. No, yeah. we will. We've got him on speed dial. <laughs> so as our final wrap-up question, what is the last thing you did for the first time? Say goodbye to my daughter. I left her in a college dorm room at the ANU and I said goodbye to her. I held her to my body and I was just desperate. I was almost desperate to put her back inside my body and to keep her safe um, forever. And so the last thing I did for the first time is that I said goodbye. Mm. Yeah, it's obviously very fresh for you, but um, given our conversation earlier, it's so clear that you have such a special relationship with your kids so i'm sure she'll always be close yeah thank you what about you sen then um the last thing i've done for the first you know what um this isn't going to be anywhere near as heartfelt but for those who don't know i am a fiend for reality tv and for the first time i have finally convinced Another one of my friends <laughs> to follow Married at First Sight with me this season. I'm not going to throw them under the bus, but it wasn't me. <laughs> it, it's you know, it's just sometimes nice being judgy and getting caught up in drama that I have no association with. So, and and now you can share that with a friend because you've you've recruited a friend to watch it exactly. exactly. Yeah, so we can gossip together. <laughs> Rose, okay, so. In November of last year, so a couple of months ago, we surprised my mum for her birthday for the first time. So that was the first time we did a surprise party for her. So we invited like her closest friends and our family friends over and we sent her to the movies for the day with my dad and my sister and I like, and with the help of a few friends, like decorated the house and we got catering and everything. And she walked in with a bag of groceries in her hand and was just like, what is everyone doing here? And it was such a great feeling because she usually does not stop talking. Like that's where I get my <laughs> talkative trait from. And she was stunned. And her friends like, this is the most speechless I have ever seen her because she usually doesn't stop talking. And she had a wonderful evening because she was very like, she likes to socialize and she was very like frustrated with having to stay home all the time because of the lockdown. Um, so that's, that's my answer. Leaving your mom speechless. 
Yes, the last, yeah, exactly. Well, the surprise and, yeah, making her speechless. That yeah. really ever happened. Awesome. <laughs> you're, you're a good daughter. Both of you are good daughters. Um, and before we close, we can't let you go without a recommendation on other creative projects for us to check out. Oh, there's so much great art and culture being created right now, constantly. Um, I would recommend a film. I haven't been to the movies uh, in, what, three years or something? Two years. It was That in itself was a confusing and exciting experience. I went to see a film called Here Out West, mm. which is a tremendous film. It's written by eight Western Sydney writers set in Western Sydney, mm. following the lives of eight families in Western Sydney. And it connects their stories to each other beautifully. Eight writers and I think maybe five directors, um, produced by Co-Curious Works and produced by Emerald Productions, Sheila Jayadev, another Tamil creative. And it was so powerful. I was completely overwhelmed. I I ended up sobbing in my husband's arms by the end of it. Um, I also read a manuscript by a new and -and up-and-coming author called Christine Shemista. And the novel is called Ashani. It's a young adult fiction, but it's written entirely in poetry form, so in verse. And I was fortunate enough to read an unpublished manuscript. Um, And Christine Shemista is a poet and an author, and it's just a fabulous piece of literature that is going to go far. That's incredible. We'll definitely check them out. Yeah, and potentially a couple of more guests for the podcast as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, Shankaraka, thank you so much for being an Akka to Romy and I. Um, We're so blessed to have people like you who we can look up to and, you know, pick your brain and, you know, seek guidance for um, if we ever need it. And, yeah, we really appreciate you so much and thank you for your time. I, d- I don't feel qualified to be your guide, but I'm honoured to be your Akka and feel that it's an entirely and completely mutual bond of love and respect and affection. And it, it actually really gives me hope for my own children. So, <laughs> so thank you because they will be looking to you and listening to you more than they will look or listen to me in, <laughs> in time. Um, and it's reassuring to me that there are, are young Tamils who are wanting to preserve our culture and help make it accessible. You know, for diasporic communities, it isn't always accessible. And the things that you do and the way that you do it, do it really centres the value of our stories and our culture. You've created such an important platform for these stories and are, as you, you know, from your very first podcast, wanted to be that bridge in the middle um, because we are stuck in a way, but it's also a really beautiful, wonderful, powerful place to be. And I love the way in which you claim that power for yourselves. Thank Thank you you. so much. Honestly, I feel like we could have talked to you for hours, uh, you know, diving more into your books and so many other topics and ideas. Well, I'm actually going to say, suggest to you, I'm very happy to come back because I think there are things that, for example, memory and history, we haven't, whether we've explored that properly. And so I'm happy to come back, you know, days, weeks, months later into the future to continue the conversation. And, uh, you know, I feel really... um, intellectually energized by the conversation and it's really good for both of us to explore them because it helps me in you know everything every experience I have and every conversation I have with people and every um, everything that people are willing to share with me does form and I say with permission and with consent forms part of both my own lived experience but also the stories that I go on to tell and nothing no word no story that you write no conversation that you ever have is ever lost right Mm -hmm. the time that you spend with people the relationships that we forge whether completely 
um, sort of temporary or, or everlasting are all valuable and shape you in some way and for myself as a writer shape the work that I produce and so I love I love them all Thanks for listening, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation with Shankari. As mentioned, make sure to grab a copy of her book at all good bookstores, including Big W and Target. But shop local if you can. We'll see you next time for our episode with model Raghavi Raghavan, where we discuss tokenism. But before then, we'll catch you next week for our mini episode on Holy. We'll see you then. Bye.